Welcome everyone to the 58th Fireside Chat. That's five years and 202 days of Fireside Chat. Welcome Tom and everyone. Thank you all for being here. And Bastian, would you please go ahead with your question first? Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, I'm getting a little bit starstruck. It's been a while. Um, dear Tom, I'd like to know if you know of some way to deal with a big emotional uh, build-up. Um, because recently I realized that I've uh, been walking around with a lot of sadness for many years without really knowing. Um, and it's been coming out every now and again, but only recently have I realized uh, like where it's coming from or one of the places that it's coming from. But it doesn't really seems to make seem to make sense that it's all from that single situation. I've been trying to use meditation to um, and to figure out where it, where it's coming from, but I have it has seemed that I've been creating it more than uh, finding it. Uh, I'm dealing with the emotions that come up a little bit at a time, but it seems like it's taking very long, and I can't see an end to it. I hope you have some ideas uh, of how to stay with the emotions or some encouraging words or a way to do uh, it. So the the one source that you found that, that uh, you're not quite satisfied that that is the entire source, yeah. um, what, what sort of thing is that? If it's personal, can you give me some general idea? Yeah. Um, um, being disconnected from an, uh, an important parental relationship uh, without really getting a good justification for it. Okay. So sadness can come from lots of different sources. And, you know, there is a, there is a sadness that comes just from, from uh, caring and loving and not being able to do anything about the things that, upset us for instance let's say you know um of some people that you love this will make it about others rather than self if you know some people that you love maybe it's your parents or maybe it's your children and you see very dysfunctional behavior and you know there's really nothing you can do to fix it you know you've tried uh, different things and it just doesn't work they're not ready yet to change the way they see things then sadness comes with that you just have to let that be how it is and it's sad how it is because you care very much so if you have a a relationship that just doesn't seem to be like you know it should be or like it could be and that's just sad that it could be better but sometimes there are situations or or uh, events or things that that uh, you can't do anything about that you just have to accept that it is the way it is. And in that case, um, you just have to, you know, I guess live with that sadness in the sense that it's there, but fill your life with other things that aren't sad. Fill your life with other things. And don't let that thing that isn't the way that would be better or that uh, would, would be optimal for, for everyone, the fact that it isn't, just accept that it's that way. And there are lessons in that. There are lessons for everybody. And those lessons will be part of your growth and their growth. To just allow it to be the way it is. And yes, if you think about it and it comes to mind, you might think, yeah, that's sad. That's too bad. It's, it's like that. But that's the way it is. And there's a lesson there for me. I need to be able to transcend that and not be drug down by that. And the other person, if it's part of a relationship issue, they have the same lesson. They need to be able to to uh, understand that perhaps it's some of their choices that are making, you know, the sadness happen and realize that and grow. So they have opportunities to grow. You have opportunities to grow. And it's just one of those sad things that you take from it what you can, which is you grow from it however you can. And then you uh, accept it and let it be. So it's not a thing that you're necessarily going to be able to turn into into happiness or the way that that uh, would make you feel better. But you can learn to put it in its own perspective. It is what it is. Everybody's made their choices. This is what turns out. People are the way they are, and not uh, get twisted up around. Yeah, but if 
if it were only different, if they weren't the way they were, you know, if they didn't make those choices and then sit there and grind on that if, 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 that's your ego. That's not just the sadness of love. That's the sadness of ego, that it's not the way I want it. And if it's not the way I want it, then I don't like it. And I'm not, I'm unhappy about it being not the way I want it. And then that's ego. And you can let go of that. That would be another lesson just to accept that it is the way it is. And everyone's made their choices and are how they are. And we just have to live with that, even though that's, that's sad. So sadness doesn't have to have ego as its source. Sadness can be just out of love, but often ego is in there. And if it is, then that's a lesson and a challenge to be able to, to deal with that and accept it. So there's no easy answer for that. All the answers are hard answers when you uh, have a sadness, but they are answers that you can grow to and that you can learn from and that you can uh, eventually accept and and uh, not feel bad about it, not feel even so much sad about it other than it, it is the way it is and you need to move on do other things optimize it make as much of it as you can perhaps but maybe there's just limitations hmm. um, but don't well, dwell on it yeah that, that's a good advice always um, it seems I'm pretty sure it's not the, the egoless uh, kind of sadness um, I'm pretty sure it's just uh, build up emotion that's uh, difficult to stay with and that's it seems to complicate my life and make me sad and restless and um, make normal situation di normal situations difficult for me yeah mm. well if it's an ego kind of sadness then basically it's it's at least a first cousin to self-pity that you you don't like the way things are and that you um uh you feel bad that they're that they're not that way you know and and self-pity can be a can be a, a difficult thing often uh, grieving when people grieve for things it's a it's really a uh, self-pity you start to feel sorry for yourself that i have this problem and i have to suffer this thing and you know i have to to deal with this and it is dysfunctional the way it is and oh that's you know that's terrible that i'm in this fix and that the people are the way they are and that's feeling sorry for yourself because you have a tough thing to deal with and that of course is not helpful at all that will drag down everything else around you so that's to be avoided that's kind of the worst of all cases of where you feel bad because you are in some unhappy situation why me all that uh that self-pity is very destructive of the rest of your life if it's got that uh if it's got that dimension to it that would be one to to uh work on very hard thank you so much uh, that was really helpful i think i'll try it out thank you for your question Sebastian, and thanks for being here i'm going to continue on with some of the older mbt forum questions <clears throat> the first question has to do with gender in consciousness is there gender in consciousness are there male attributes or female attributes i will ask the question as it was submitted by Sarah 24 thank you so much for all you do and for this question collection I have a question about the big cheese being male that I know other women will have as well. Does this mean that the God of our system is male and all our sexist religions have been right about that after all? Does this mean that women will face glass ceilings in the larger reality or MPMR as well? Was the previous big cheese male too? And how are we supposed to feel motivated or encouraged if our God, his pals, his representatives on earth, Council of Elders, etc., are all men. Where do female souls even fit in our our system? <laughs> I should probably add <clears throat> that I am asking this here 
because another woman raised this point on another section of your forum, but was criticized by some of the men on the forum. So I thought that if I wanted to get a real answer instead of being plain, I should ask it on this thread. So we're glad that you did ask it. And I just want to uh, fill in some of the listeners who aren't familiar with the term big cheese. This is just a construct of hierarchy in a, in a system outside of our virtual reality. So, Tom, please yes. go ahead. Well, the, the basic and most fundamental answer is that, no, there is no gender. Uh, there is no gender uh, beyond the avatar. You know, gender is part of the properties of us as avatars. We're male or female um, you know, in these bodies that we have. But once you get beyond the body, then there is no no uh, specific gender. But you do have uh, consciousnesses, individual, you some consciousness that identify themselves more as male or female. And often that has to do with usually the last incarnation they had. You know, if it was male, they tend to identify more as male. If it was female, they tend to identify more as female. But uh, sometimes it's the fact that they've had uh, maybe many more uh, male or female incarnations than, than the opposite sex. So some entities just have a, a kind of a self-identity that still carries gender just because that's the avatars that they have always have gender. Okay, so we have that. And then we have the fact that we interpret things based on how we see the picture. In other words, when I get information, I have, I interpret that in terms of pattern matches that match my own experience space. And that's the way everybody else interprets things. So if I'm talking to an entity, now this entity really doesn't have form or shape. I'm talking to consciousness. It's not really extent. It's not really dressed and wearing clothes. All of that is what I add to it as I, um, you know, get the data and interpret it. If it's a person, then I'll interpret it as a, you know, as a, like a humanoid. You know, rather than a talking rock or a talking, uh, you know, chicken or something, I will interpret it as a humanoid because that's my pattern match for something that you talk to and carry on a conversation with. And if its characteristics tend to be more um, male-like or more um, feminine, more female-like, then I may then give it a male or female shape or appearance. But all of this is what I bring to it. It doesn't mean that that entity identifies that way. It just means that that is my, um, it, it's just my pattern match. And how I describe this entity is what I bring to it. So you have all of that. That's really where the gender in the, in the consciousness realm comes from. It comes from what? what the the person receiving the information adds to it based on their experience and what the consciousness might add to it based on their own experience and preferences. But in general, no, there's no gender at all outside of outside of uh, this PMR. The gender has goes with our avatars. So I described the the uh, the big cheese as male just because that was my own um, I don't know. It was my own sense of the nature of the data that I got. It just came out that way. Uh, had the, had the voice that I heard, had the conversation that I had been, uh, softer, quieter, more, uh, more sensitive and caring, I probably would have said that that was female and I would have identified it as female. So it's kind of the interaction I have and the way it interacts with me. Now, it could interact, the same entity could interact in many different ways with different people. So it has nothing to do actually with the gender of what I was calling them the big cheese. And the big cheese, of course, isn't really so much a being as it is a metaphor for that layer of 
administration, if you will, that layer of control, that layer of, uh, of government that's in charge of end division. Not necessarily, uh, you know, just this, uh, virtual reality, but perhaps other virtual realities of which this is one. So because there is a very flat organizational structure and you need an organizational structure because you have rules. And whenever you have rules, you have to have somebody that sees whether or not the rules are being obeyed. And if not, take some sort of action. And if they are, then everything's fine. Or maybe the rules need to be changed. Maybe they're not good rules or maybe they used to be good rules and, you know, they need, they need to be modified. So you always have to have, you know, oversight when you have rules. So that's why you have some organizational structure because oversight's required. And this being, I call it the big cheese because I'm trying not to let people get too serious about this and call it God. So I want to stay away from that. So I just call it the big cheese. Um, the person in charge and the big cheese, um, to me as I've interacted with it. And it's a, it's an entity that I've, that I have known and been aware of for a long time. And those interactions are more guy-like from my perspective. But it doesn't mean that the big cheese is a guy or that he uh, has uh, interactions with anybody else that way. That may just be the way he interacts with me. So it may be his awareness of, you know, me and, and uh, my attitudes and so ever that whatsoever that he that he comes across that way, but there's no gender specifically with the big cheese. You know, this gets very, it gets very uh, awkward in books when you're writing to write that, uh, you know, the he slash she and the her slash him. And we have all these, uh, you know, sexually, uh, um, uh, connotation in the, in the, uh, you know, in, in the word of the he, the she and, I know some authors will do that. So everywhere that they, they will have a he or a she, they'll either put one or the other, or they'll randomly switch them around, or they'll put he slash she. And all of that's kind of awkward. So I just tend to play it one way or the other. Sometimes I may say a he, sometimes I may say a she, but all of that is more or less kind of, kind of random. It's much easier than putting both down with, with him, hers, with slashes between them. I find it'd be a very awkward, uh, uh, way of, way of writing. So part of it's just that the language requires us to use gender because we only have pronouns that are terms of he, she, and it, right? You can't, uh, you know, we don't have any, any uh, language in terms of, uh, of neuter people. Only males and females. It just goes with the language. So it comes out that way with the language, and it doesn't really mean much more than that. Thank you, Tom. I'll move on to the next question. This is from the MPT Forum, Pipeman84. I have a question about accidents, for instance, and these are true stories I read about in the papers, because you can always rely on that. A group of people are waiting for the bus. A speeding driver loses control of the car, hits the group. Three out of four, let's say, are killed. Another example, after a night out, a group of youngsters are in the car going home. The driver is either too tired or drunk, loses control of the car, hits an oncoming truck. All of them are dead. Now, if any one of the persons in cases like these had a bigger plan or a mission in his lifetime, can we assume that the LCS would have intervened so that they wouldn't have died? Uncertainty is very big in such accidents, and an intervention would not fall short of the side principle, I think. Well, it depends. In general, the LCS, the larger conscious system, likes to keep its hands off. It likes to let things happen and interactions happen as they do. It does not like interfering with our free will and the consequences of our free will, because that's how we learn. We make choices. We have consequences of those choices. We get to learn from those choices. So in general, it wants to let us 
you know, experience those consequences and doesn't butt in to try to make things better the way it wants it. So it doesn't really interfere unless it feels it needs to. In other words, unless there's a, a significant uh, uh, change in entropy that might result from this. So if there were someone who had a, a mission, a plan for their life, and it was something that was very important to the system, a person that the system had groomed for that spot and put in that, you know, and, and is grooming to do certain kinds of things here in their lifetime for one of those, then the system probably would have whispered in that person's ear, don't get in the car, go, you know, go home some other way, take a bus, call a cab, but don't get in the car or don't go to that party. It wouldn't be a good party to go to or some other such thing. So the system might interfere in that way. Or the system might have one of these wrecks where the car rolls over and a lot of people die, but one person doesn't even get a scratch. They walk away unhurt. You know, it could do something like that. So the system will interfere if it's kind of a, you know, it feels like it has to. It feels like the the overall system entropy is better served by its interference. But for the most part, that's not what happens. For the most part, the system just lets it work out on its own, even if that means that there's a whole bunch of people partway through their life who did have plans to maybe meet other people or do things, but, well, they got in a car with a drunk driver, and it was a bad choice. It rolls over, and everybody's dead. Well, it's just like that. That plan doesn't work out. And that person now gets to start over. Well, that's not a terrible thing, like to be avoided at all costs. It seems like it from our perspective. Oh, no, what a terrible waste. But from the perspective of the system, it's just one more lifetime. All right, that one got cut short. That potential didn't work out. But we get to try it again. So what it's done is it's cost some time. It hasn't really hurt the evolution of that particular entity of that uh, of that consciousness because the consciousness is going to get back in and have another experience and another one and another one after that so what it does it just takes some time that was spent developing a particular avatar and now it's got to start over well this is not a time test you get to have all the time between now and eternity to work on this so the fact that you lose, you know, some time inefficiently by being partway through and having to start over, well, that just is the way the cookie crumbles sometimes. It's not that big a deal from the bigger perspective viewpoint of the evolution of that individuated unit of consciousness. So the system just lets that happen. It's part of our existence. It's sometimes, you know... Things like that happen. Sometimes everything's going just fine and you have a lot of potential and, you know, you catch a fatal disease or you're in an accident or something else. Well, you get to try again. So typically, that's the way it works. It just works out the way it works out. Everybody makes choices. The, the guy who was drunk driver, he made choices to drink. Then he made choices to drive. And the people who were just in the car, they made choices to get in the car with him, even though they maybe knew that he had been drinking. Um, and maybe he was immature or something else. And they made choices. And all of everybody makes their choices. And the results of those choices play out. And maybe the, uh, you know, uh, the drunk driver may just get everybody home safely, but maybe not. The system may only interfere if it seems like that it's it's uh, worthwhile for it to interfere. Typically, it does not. Thanks, Tom. This next question from MBT Forum has some of the elements of the former question. And this is from Tricia from MBT Forum. Is it true that we pick the hardships in our life? It's difficult for me to believe that someone would want to experience being raped and murdered. When I was a little girl, six years old, I used to play with my neighbor who was eight years old. She left school early to take her dog home and never returned. I'm in my early 50s now, so this is many years ago. 
when you could leave school? Did she really choose to go through this? Probably not. Probably not. It's it's a mistake to think that everybody's life is according to a plan. That everybody comes here with a set of experiences that they want to go through for some purpose. That is not the case. Uh, there may be some planning, but there's not nearly as much planning as many people think because it's too hard to execute a plan when there's so much randomness going on. All the interactions of all the other people out there affect us, and there's no way for us to control all those interactions. Who we might bump into, uh, you know, what might happen to us, to our family, to the people we love, to whatever. It just, it just does. And all the choices end up together to make whatever it is that happens, and it happens. So it's, it's very unlikely that somebody said, oh, I really would like to get raped and murdered. Therefore, you know, I'm going to plan that in my next, my next lifetime. That is not the way it works. So the problem with that thought, you know, that raised that question is that it is not planned. Everybody's life is not a planned thing. Stuff happens. We get to deal with it. How we deal with it modifies what happens next okay so that's just the way it works out and if it works out badly to where you you exit the experience packet prematurely then you just get to have another experience packet and realize that those things happen it's uh, not true that we are all programmed to experience certain things that we come here and oh in the last lifetime you know i murdered somebody now this time lifetime somebody needs to murder me it does not work like that it's not that simple the uh, uh that is that is too simplistic a way of looking at the way things are thanks tom the next question comes from rosie m from the MC forum i've been meditating for several years, return frequently to the trilogy as well as reading and watching other people's takes on the subject of spiritual growth in the hope and expectation of catching glimpses of the bigger picture. I do get out and about a bit too. My question is about the possible physical effects of studying and practicing MBT. For some time now, I've noticed a heightened sensitivity to electrical gadgets. Sometimes there's a tingling in my feet when I turn on the oven and a similar strange sensation when the mixer goes on. Today I made porridge using the microwave and I had to sit down because I came dizzy. Although I'm 78, I'm fit and active. Use no medication, get plenty of exercise and fresh air, and there's no reason to think there's a problem with my health. As soon as the machines are switched off, these effects go away. Going into big shopping areas has never been a challenge. Uh, none of this is particularly distressing. Um, there's no need to visit shopping arcades, so I stay away. The tingly and heart raising are in interesting phenomena rather than alarming. I'm just curious to know if other people have noticed similar effects and whether there could be a connection between the regular practice of spiritual exercises, contemplation, and electricity. Um, well, it's not just electricity. As you uh, as you start evolving more and you you meditate more, you become uh, more sensitive to the things around you, more aware of the things around you. You know, that's kind of living in the moment um, becomes a more um, a bigger part of your life. And when you're living in that moment, you're you're connected to all sorts of things. And sometimes you will get information or feelings or, in your case, a, a buzz or a dizziness or whatever when you do things. And... Typically, that is just letting you know that reality is not just this this um, this physical materialistic thing. That there's other components to it. So some of that is just a kind of a, a, a gentle message from the system that says, "Yes, reality is a lot more complicated than just the material." That here you are, and you do certain things, and you turn on a mixer or something, and you get a little buzz. Well, that's just there to show you that there's a connection between you and everything else. You are connected. You're connected to it all. And it's just a little reminder of that. So, yeah, those things happen, and they come and they go. And right now, if you're in a phase where that's happening a lot, 
Um, probably in six months or a year, you'll go through other phases where it doesn't happen at all. So I just say, enjoy it. It doesn't bother you. Then uh, just find it amusing and find it fun that when you do these things, you're going to get that reaction. And it doesn't really mean anything particular in particular other than it's a, a statement. It's a, it's giving you a little firsthand information about the nature of reality being much greater than the physical. And because you've evolved to the point where you're aware of that, that's why it happens to you because it's something that, that uh, is meaningful to you. Thanks, Tom. Next question from the MBT forum is kind of sweet. It's about uh, feeding dogs. Uh, this is from uh, Pateria. My question concerns taking care of my dog. I'm vegetarian these days, but my little dog, of course, loves to have some meat in her diet. I try to feed her some leftovers and things like that, but I also prepare uh, rice and meat and vegetable patties. I was wondering what Tom feeds his dogs. Are they completely vegetarian, and how do you deal with the issue? <laughs> no, uh, they're not completely vegetarian. They um, they get one meal a day, and this is not how Tom feeds his dogs. This is how Pamela feeds her dogs. Um, she's the one that does the special feeding. Now, every day they start their day with a breakfast that Pamela makes for them, and it will often have meat in it, sometimes raw, sometimes cooked. Uh, it'll often have an egg in it. Uh, it m always has vegetables in it, all sorts of things. The dogs like uh, an amazing array of things. Um, you know, we they get peas and carrots and broccoli and cabbage and all sorts of things. They They enjoy it. They eat every bite of it. And we also have a free feed of the dry kibble. Free feed means it's a big container that as they eat it, maybe it's a like a four-gallon or five-gallon container, a real big container, and as they eat it, more drops out the bottom, you know, into a little feeder. So they can eat that for months, and when the barrel gets empty, then I fill it back up again. And that's just there 24-7 all the time. That's why it's called a free feed. And they supplement what they get for breakfast with that during the day. So if they feel a little hungry, then they eat some of that kibble. And if they don't, they don't. And none of my dogs have ever been overweight. All of them stay real lean and real trim. And we've always free fed them, given them all the food they could possibly eat. They also don't fight over food bowls. They don't get possessive over food. Because they know that there's an infinite supply of food that just always, you know, pours out the bottom of this device. And they have no need to hog it or no need to eat more of it uh, because it's always going to be there. So from when they're very young puppies, they realize that the source of food is infinite, never goes away. So they don't ever have to worry about grabbing food. And they never overeat. They only eat when they need to. So now, Pamela was gone last week. And while she was gone, I did not give them the breakfast in the normal way she does. She has all her stuff in certain places and the way she uses it. And I just didn't mess with that process. I just let them eat the kibble. And in which case, I noticed they ate a whole lot more of that kibble than they do normally because that's they weren't getting the breakfast that they usually get. So they ate more of it. And then when she gives them breakfast, they eat less of it. So they regulate themselves. Now, the kibble we get tends to be uh, no grain, and um, it has meat of some sort in it. But no preservatives, no grain. We try to get the, the cleanest, uh, highest quality dog food we can get. That means it's fairly expensive, but, you know, that's, that's life, right? You try to feed your dogs what you think is most healthy for them. But how good it actually is for them, I don't know. It doesn't look all that appetizing. Little brown pellets of, uh, of food that it's good for their teeth because the pellets are hard and they have to chew them and that helps clean their teeth. 
So that's how I feed my dogs or how Pamela feeds her dogs when, uh, when she's here. Now, every time they have a birthday, Pamela bakes a cake for them, but her cake is often made out of, uh, you know, turkey or sometimes hamburger or something like that. She bakes this, this cake and she puts candles on it. She does the whole thing and she takes it down and, and, uh, Gives them some special cuddles and and uh, and hugging and, and attention, and then she makes all the other dogs stand back while the birthday dog gets to sit there and eat first. And then after that dog eats first, and another minute or so goes by, then she she uh, cuts it into pieces and gives all the rest of the dogs some. So that happens every every time one of our dogs has a has a birthday they get a birthday cake with candles um i don't think uh, she sings happy birthday song to them uh but who knows she may do that too mostly i'm there in attendance as well we're both there but um sometimes i'm work i'm working i'm doing email or or someplace else when she does this but typically that's a bigger event in the doggy's life so they eat well and yes, they need some meat in their diet because that's part of the way they grow up. They're carnivorous animals that uh, meat is a fundamental part of their diet. So you have to give them the amount of protein that their body is, is looking for. You know, and uh, I'm more vegan than I am vegetarian, but, you know, humans can get by without meat very well. We don't, uh, we're omnivores. We can eat all of those things, but for the first, I don't know, probably close to 200,000 years, we didn't, or I mean, let's even say half of that, the first 100,000 years of our evolution, I suspect we didn't eat much meat, maybe fish, but not much else because we're just not very good at catching things. Almost everything else that runs around in the woods or out in the fields sees better, hears better, smells better, and runs faster than humans do. We're kind of the, you know, the, the clunky uh, avatar amongst animals. So it's hard for people to catch meat. Uh, they had to require tools for that. They needed uh, spears and bows and arrows and, you know, knives to skin it with. And it wasn't until they had a lot of tool use and then fire to cook it. Well, that came quite a bit later after uh, humanoids first walked around. That kind of tool use uh, didn't happen until a long time later. And as long as we were running around trying to grab things with our hands, I don't think we ate a whole lot of meat. Perhaps we found ways to uh, trap fish in, in little ponds after the tide goes down, uh, that sort of thing. But uh, our bodies evolved to be able to live without meat and have all the the nutrients that we need to do that, unlike dogs or wolves, you know, that which is the stock that dogs come from. They meat was always a uh, part of their diet because they were fast enough and and had good enough uh, sense of uh, smell and sight that they could catch their food much better than than us. So that's the difference. Yes, dogs need to have a to have uh, that meat. It, it's part of their uh, physical system. It's the way their avatar has evolved to work. All right. Thanks, Tom, for that answer. The next question from the MBT forum is from Ash O. Uh, adopting MBT and its aspects into the education system. With the creation of QSEC and the ongoing experimentation, are there any plans for creating a standardized course in MBT for use in educational settings? Now, we do know of one professor in uh, Spokane at Gonzaga University, Professor Eric Cunningham. He has adapted MBT into some of his courses. Uh, maybe having an accredited school for those who want to study this topic in an accepted scholarly environment could help uh, present these commonly perceived as off-the-wall topics as more approachable if they garnered the status of other science. We'd love to hear Tom's thoughts and other thoughts. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. Uh, there's a lot of things that we should teach in schools that we don't. 
uh, we should start with uh, in the very early uh, elementary grades with critical thinking. Teach children to tell the difference between an opinion and a fact. You know, just little things like that where uh, we help them learn how to assess and judge and, and analyze the data they get in a way that helps them get right answers more often rather than just follow along and do what they're told. But then we have to be ready for them to do things their own way. When we teach them critical thinking, they won't necessarily just want to follow whatever we tell them. So we have to give them that uh, that ability in the schools as well to uh, do things in their own way. So there's lots of things we could do. But just MBT, being taught as MBT probably won't fly. But just the concepts in MBT, the ideas in MBT, um, that there is, you know, that we have this thing called intuition and that we can develop it to where it becomes a useful tool, a reliable tool. Things like that could be taught. So children could learn uh, that they're not just intellects, that there's more to them than just this intellectual side. That could easily be made part of a curriculum and MBT you know, need never be mentioned. So there's lots of ideas like that. And I think that's terrific. And the more creative teachers we have that employ um, you know, a bigger picture concepts to teach children. I think the better we'll all be when those children grow up and uh, have less ego and less fear. Thank you, Tom. Some of the physicists and materialists could have used some of the critical thinking education probably uh, would have made a little MBT a little bit easier too. Well, I would not single them out. I think they're just no. very, very much like everybody else. Yes. You know, they have their own beliefs that, uh, you know, that, that they, uh, do not question just like most everybody else does. Well, the next couple of questions come from Mario. Um, on the LCS being subjected to a rule set itself, Tom has often stated that we cannot know whether the LCS is ultimately all that there is or whether the LCS is part perhaps part of an even bigger system of reality that incorporates the LCS itself. But if we can become aware of our situation within the LCS and understand what our job is, then why shouldn't the LCS be able to become aware of whether it itself is part of something bigger? And if Tom is in contact with the LCS and able to ask it questions, why shouldn't he be able to ask the LCS what it knows about the situation? Tom might say that he could never verify whether the answer he got would be true or bogus. But I'm not sure if that's true. I think it's worth hearing the answer. The reason why I ask this is because I get the feeling that the LCS, magnificent as it may be, is also being put through its paces just like we are. Tom says that the consciousness needs to evolve to stay alive, and if it doesn't evolve, it regresses or de-evolves just like us. It sounds like the LCS is subject to a rule set, just like us. Well, the LCS does indeed need to does need to evolve to survive. It's also in the same kind of evolution that we are. That is, it has choices. It makes those choices. It has consequences. And as its choices help lower the system entropy, it being the system, then it evolves. If the choices it makes increase entropy, it de-evolves, and if it continues to de-evolve enough, it dies, it goes away. So it's like us, we're like it in that in that way. But would the system be aware that it was interacting with other things? Maybe. It depends on the nature of that interaction. Um, but let's say it is aware. Let's say there is something outside of the LCS that it's part of. Okay. And if I ask it, LCS, are you part of anything else bigger than yourself? Yes, I have a problem then. I cannot verify it. I just get an answer and I am a very skeptical person. So I would not then pass that on as a fact because I have no way of verifying it. So that's from my viewpoint. From the LCS's viewpoint, the LCS would say, well, is that going to help you grow up any? 
is there any advantage in you knowing that? Is there anything that uh, is going to help you make better choices? And the answer to that would be no. Well, then why do you want to know? Oh, just curious. I'd just like to know. And the LCS says, that's nice, but no thank you. The LCS doesn't want to feed my curiosity just because I'd like to know. If it's going to be helpful for me, and it's some way that's going to help me grow up or help anybody else grow up to know that, then it would want to pass that information along. But if it isn't going to help anybody's growth, then the only other thing that it would do is either nothing at all or help somebody else's ego, help somebody else create a story about this thing that's on the outside and what it is and where it came from and who's in charge. And that would just be, what, nonsense, okay? Unless the system knows all of that as a story, you know, maybe the system would know that, maybe it wouldn't. I mean, how many people walking around on the planet today have no idea that they're even part of a larger system? It's probably a very small number of humans that have some idea that they're part of a larger system, that our universe is part of a larger system. And are they aware of it? That's a fact. Yes, indeed. But they're not aware of it. So just because you're a part of a larger system doesn't necessarily mean how aware you are of that and how much you know of it and how much detail there is. That depends on the super system, and it depends on the level of interaction with that super system. So the system may or may not know um, a whole lot about what it interacts with, or there may be nothing. From my viewpoint, I can't tell any of that, so I couldn't either you know, confirm or deny any of it. So I don't ask because there's no point in asking. If you ask about things just because you're curious, that usually just feeds ego. It doesn't do anything useful. Um, you know, I say that a lot in the, in the, the uh, course I give, the intensive course, that it's important to have a reason why you want to know information. Do you want to know just because, gee, I think it'd be cool to know that? The system does not work with that very well. It does not... Uh, it does not feed that. You know, if you want to work, if you want to learn something about the system because it's going to help you grow, it's going to help your understanding, it'll help you see a bigger picture, Ah, now the system can work with that. But there's all kinds of things that people would like to know. Oh, did so-and-so do what? Oh, was that Harry broke up with Sally, or did Sally really break up with Harry? I'd like to know that because, you know, that's just, I'm just curious you ask the system, and the system just won't give you an answer. It'll give you a wrong answer or otherwise let you know that that's not an appropriate question. There's lots of things that people could be curious about that they'd want to know, and the system doesn't go there because there's millions of those questions, and they don't lead any place useful. And if they don't lead any place useful, they have only downward potential. They either lead no place at all, or to lead someplace that's less than useful. So that's really what that's all about. So I wouldn't ask that question of the system, because when you work with the system, you have to have a certain amount of, I guess, respect from the system. You have to have a good working relationship with the system. And the way you do that is by evolving yourself, by caring, by and when you ask questions, it's questions that are going to be helpful to you or somebody else. You get information out of databases. It's, it's for, it's going to be useful for you or somebody else. And when I say useful, I don't mean to make them uh, number one on the gossip circuit. I mean useful in the sense of helping them evolve the quality of their consciousness. Okay, so that's a good question. A question just because I'm curious is not a good question. And if I ask many not good questions, pretty soon my working relationship with the LCS is not as good as it was before. I don't get as much value out of it because I'm being seen as not all that serious. I ask questions out of curiosity, 
not because they're really valuable to anyone. It doesn't have time to play with my idol, you know, curiosity or with my ego. So I don't ask those kinds of questions because it will, it would undermine the good working relationship that I've got. And that would go, that would be the same for using, you know, getting information out of the databases. Information about other people, they're right there in the databases. But if you misuse it or don't use it properly, which is to help yourself or others grow up, okay, then the system will work less and less with you. In fact, it may even get to the point that it locks you out of the database or just gives you misinformation. So a good working relationship is critical, and you don't do that by asking curiosity questions or questions that feed egos. Because what would I do with that? What could I possibly use that information for? Tell other people, I know, and you don't. I know more than you do. You know, the larger conscious system is a, is a buddy of mine, and he tells me secrets, but he won't tell you. I mean, what could you do with that information? What value would it have? It, uh, and if you told other people when you can't verify it, then you may be misleading people. Remember, everything you get, all the information you get, could come from the LCS, it could come from some, some other individuated unit of consciousness, some other IUC, or it could come from yourself. Those are three different sources of the information that you get. And when you get information, it could be any one of those three or any mixture of those three, and there's no way to separate them. That those different sources don't come in different colors or different little tags on them to say what it is. So when you get information, it could be part coming from your own imagination, you're the source, or from some other IUFC, or from the larger conscious system. Three separate possibilities, and you'll never be able to separate those. With practice, you'll get better at separating them, with a lot of practice, you'll get pretty good at separating them, but you'll never be a hundred percent sure. You'll never be, um, you know, totally certain of what you get or where it comes from. There's always uncertainty about that. And there should be. That's what I mean when I say always stay skeptical. There should be very few things ever that get a one or a zero, a one that says, I'm sure of this absolutely. And those things are usually very small and trivial things. But the bigger it is, the more um, bigger picture it is, the more facets it has, the more it connects to other things. As things get more and more complicated, very seldom will you ever have a one or a zero. You'll always remain skeptical and always remain open-minded, live gracefully with uncertainty, and don't, you know, be be very uh, careful of the relationship that you create with the larger consciousness system because it will take you more or less seriously accordingly. Thank you, Tom. I guess um, it's human nature, and this is so throughout history, that humans question their existence. They ask questions, maybe make stories. If they don't get the answers they need, make stories around what they need to fit their circumstances. And we've seen a lot of evidence of that. Oh, people make up stories. They don't even know they're making up stories. When when I teach people to remote view, the one of the hardest things to teach people is not to make up a story. They, they will get some information. They'll get colors. They'll get shapes. They'll get a situation. And immediately the intellect will jump in on top of that and make up a story to make what they got make sense. You see, the, and it's not because they they know they're doing it. The intellect just does that. It'll jump in and make up a story to fit. So they'll see a round circle, and they'll see that it's, you know, red. And they'll say, oh, it's an apple. Oh, it's a basketball. Oh, it's, you know, a red dot. Oh, it's a traffic light. You know, they can say all kinds of things. But as soon as they guess at what it actually is, 
they lose it. They're no longer in touch with the, um, you know, with that part of them that really gets the data. They've jumped into the intellectual mode and they've just ruined the connection they have. And it's almost certain they'll get a wrong answer. What they need to just report is I saw something roundish and it was red. That's what they got. Turning it in, you know, making a story behind it and guessing what it is, is a sure way of getting the wrong answer. So we make up stories. And we think the story is correct because as soon as our intellect says, oh, it's probably an apple. Well, then we see the stem and the little leaf and the apple tree. We see the whole thing because our, we make that up to corroborate what our guess was. We create a, we, we make a guess and then we create something to justify that guess. And then we report, oh, it was an apple. Yeah, I saw the tree. I saw the leaf on it. I saw the stem coming out. Uh, I even saw it being sliced open and made into little slices, and I ate some, and it was delicious. When really all they got was it was roundish and it was red. And all the rest of it is what they bring to the table. You see, well, you don't know that it's you bringing it to the table. And many people, as they get data out of the databases, as they talk to dead people, as they, you know, talk to their dogs and cats, and they're getting stories and they're getting information, it's very difficult. It takes a lot of practice to learn to not add data to it. It's just a, like you say, it's an, it's kind of a normal thing, a natural thing that we make guesses and then we build stories around those guesses. That's the way we work. It's the way our intellect works, and we don't even know we're doing it. So, yes, always stay, always stay skeptical. All right, Tom, the next question from Mario is on Hindu teachings on spiritual development. Years ago, I used to attend lectures and meditation sessions at the Hindu ashram. I also read some of their publications in which they frequently advocated semen retention for males. This view was not for moral reasons, but I believe because for Hindus, wasting sexual energy prevents spiritual development. I was wondering whether MBT has a view on this topic. Yes, I suppose MBT does have a view on that topic, and that's that none of that really makes much difference. You know, it's not like it's a zero-sum game. You know, if, if you... If you uh, do other things besides, you know, meditate. That doesn't mean you're just distracting from your meditation. You can put too much of your time in meditation and become unbalanced. So you're a human being. You have a sexual component to you being a human being. And you need to explore and interact with and express that sexuality just because it's a part of who you are. And it's, it's that... Um, you know, you're not wasting something in sexuality that, that needs to be saved for spirituality. That's a, what, that's a tool perhaps, a metaphor, that if you believe it, it may work that way for you because you'll say, oh, okay, you know, I've become a monk now. You know, I don't have a sexual life anymore, so I've got all this extra energy for spiritual stuff, and then you go into your spiritual stuff. Well, that's just a, a tool to get you focused. But it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. It's, uh, you know, it can be that way. You can make those kinds of, of associations in your mind, but they're not fundamental, I guess is what I'm getting at. There's no fundamental thing that says, you know, sexuality is somehow not compatible with uh, spirituality. That's not the case. We are... Avatars, avatars come with genders and they come with instincts as well. And you need to be all that you can be. You need to be able to express yourself in all the ways that are, that are, uh, you know, natural to you. And all of it needs to be in harmony. So to take one part of it and say, let's, let's pretend that we don't have this part so that we can, you know, put that effort in some other part. That's not necessary. Could be a tool. People could think that way and maybe even get something out of it, but it's not fundamental. It's just a story that we make up to give people, to get commitment from people 
to get, uh, you know, maybe certain attitude from people or only get people who are very serious, um, who are willing to do that sorts of thing. So it may have other kind of reasons for it, but all of that has to do with, you know, mind manipulation, not really with anything fundamental about, about, uh, sexuality and spirituality somehow being in competition for your energy.